Yeah. So we're, like Kaylee said, we're finishing up. Is that me or is that you? Okay. Put it on the stand. Oh, we're good. Okay. So we're, we're finishing up our Jesus is series and we're talking about how Jesus is the life. There you go, Kaylee. Clap for Kaylee, everyone. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why. It just felt like that. That was fun. I just, I like, this mic gives me power. Like you do the things that I ask you to do and it's great. So that's why I did that. Anyway, uh, we're talking about Jesus's and tonight we're talking about how Jesus is the life. And if, if you've got a Bible, uh, flip it open to 1 John 5. Uh, if you don't have a Bible on you, we've got Bibles in the back. You can actually take one with you. They're free. Um, and you also, we'd encourage you to download the Bible app on your phone so you can kind of follow along with us. First uh, John's towards the back of the Bible. We're in First John 5. And we're talking about Jesus is the life. And, and when I was thinking about this and what it means to, to have life, uh, I, started, I started thinking about my dad. Okay? So I, I am going to talk about my dad a lot because he was influential in my life and, and because he was just a stinking hilarious dude. And so I've got a lot of stories. Like the dude just loved to sing and he didn't care where he was. So we would be like walking through Walmart and he would just start singing, man, I feel like a woman just because he could, right? And, and so, like, the reason I thought about my dad is because he was, he was so full of life. Like, more than anybody I know, he sort of embodied this idea of what it means to have life as a person. And if you were at the kickoff, you, you kind of know my, my story, but if you weren't there, my dad actually passed away when I was in, in high school. Um, but it, but it's okay. Like a lot of that, a lot of those are just good memories that I have with him now and, and my life, like that's actually how I became a Christian was through that. And so I, you know, I like talking about it. Um, but yeah, I, I remember seeing him like towards the end of his life and I forget if I mentioned this or not, but, but literally nurses used to fight over who got to be in his room. Like there was a sign up list for my dad's room because he was so much fun to be around. Like being a nurse is probably a difficult job. It's probably depressing at times. And as soon as they would walk in the room, my dad would just start cracking jokes. He'd like ask them about their life. I remember coming in when he was going through everything that he was going through and him like asking us how we were doing. And there was just this hope in his life that was real. You know, and not the type of hope that is like wishful thinking, like, like I hope I get something for Christmas. Like you're kind of hoping it's gonna happen. The type of hope that's like, he knew that he was going to spend eternity with Jesus. He was confident in that reality and in that confidence in what was coming to him informed and influenced the way that he lived. And so here's what, what is kind of crazy about this. And, and when we think about this idea that Jesus is the life, it's not a super tangible idea. It's, I, I can't really give you like a nice clean definition of that. But I think he kind of embodied what this means, that, that being alive means more than just sort of physically existing, right? And, and so, so if I was in that room at the time with my dad, and you ask somebody who in this room is living and who in this room is dying, they would have said he's dying because he was physically and that I was alive. But it was ex actually the exact opposite. So... So he was, was physically passing away, but mentally, emotionally, and most importantly, spiritually, he was coming to life. And I was, I was physically alive, I was physically there, but in every other facet of my life, I was dying. 
I didn't have hope. I, I, I was depressed. I, I didn't know what to live for. I didn't have passion. And, and here's, here's my point. Here's what I want you to see. That, and, and I think we all intuitively know this. We just don't think about it enough. That it's not enough to just physically exist. It's not enough to just physically be alive. We want something more than that. We want to live. We don't just want to survive. We want to live for something that matters. We want to have a hope that informs and influences everything about the way that we live. And I'm telling you, there's a lot of things that will promise you life in this life. There's a lot of things in college that will say, hey, if you, if you just pursue this, if you just pursue that, that career, that job, your plan for your life, the, the whatever it is, you know, I, I kind of have those lists that I usually go on whatever, but if you just pursue this, if you just have that, then you'll have life, then you'll be okay, then your life will matter, then, then you'll be important. But I want to tell you this, it all will fail you. There's only one thing in this world that can actually back up the promise to offer you life. Look at 1 John 5, verse 20. 1 John 5, verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we're in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So in other words, true life is found by being in Christ to have hope, to have joy, to have something that's actually worth living for is to have Jesus, and to not have Jesus is to not have any of those things. But, but here's what you gotta see in this. You gotta hear me on, on, on what I mean. It's, it's not enough to sort of just do some Christian stuff. You have to have supernatural life that comes into you. You have to encounter Jesus for who he is. You have to have a supernatural interaction with him, and you have to have new life that enters you. Okay, so earlier this year, we planted some zinnias by my house. Zinnias are flowers, okay? Uh, so we planted some zinnias, and we planted them as seeds, and then we like, you know, we had to take care of them, so there was fertilizer, and we watered them and stuff like that. So if you were to walk past my house, and you would see me to wa watering zinnias, you would think, that dude's old. Because watering flowers is an old thing to do, right? But it's fairly normal. Okay, right, like that's what you do to flowers. Now, if you were to walk past my house, you saw me pick up a rock, like a boulder, okay? And then I put it in a planter, and then I like carefully put some fertilizer around it, and then I started watering it. And then you came back the next day, and I was sitting there watching my rock. And you were like, bro, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm growing some rock. You'd think I'd lost my mind. Like I'm a crazy person. Why? Because you can't grow inanimate objects, Right? The only thing that grows is something that has life in it. This is what's true. If you haven't actually encountered Jesus and experienced his life, there's no life in you. And, and so it doesn't matter how much Christian stuff you do. It doesn't matter how much you kind of take care of your life, how much you water it. You're not going to grow. You're not going to change. You're not going to look more like Jesus. And some of all, like your strategies for life and for living is you're going to fix kind of all of this stuff in your life and through effort and willpower and doing Christian stuff, that's how you're going to develop into this new thing. And I'm telling you, no, like you've got to come alive. There's a difference between what you do and who you are. 
And year after year in Salt Company, I see people trying to do Christianity, to put Jesus into their life because it seems like the right thing to do or because he'll somehow kind of improve your life or because it's what you've always done. And so you do Christianity, but it hasn't impacted you. It hasn't changed you. It hasn't, it's maybe changed your behavior a little bit, but it hasn't changed your heart. It hasn't changed what you're living for. It hasn't changed what you love. And so tonight I want to talk to you about the real thing, real life in Christ versus the fake stuff. And so this is where we're going. I want to talk to you about like kind of the the vital signs of Christianity, like the signs that you know that there's real life there. And, And here's kind of the vital signs from our text. Confidence instead of fear. Freedom instead of slavery and eternal life instead of death. Confidence instead of fear, freedom instead of slavery, eternal life instead of death. Okay, so confidence instead of fear. 1 John 5, 13 through 15. Go ahead and follow along with me. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Did you hear that? That you may know that you have eternal life. That's a bold statement. And this is the confidence that we have towards him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Okay, so this is saying that there's people who can have confidence that they will spend eternity with Jesus, which the, the stakes are pretty high for that, right? So this is what we're talking about. Like, do you ever just sit around and think about eternity? It messes with me. I get confused and freaked out. Like a million years and then add a million Okay, anyway, so eternity, like where you're going to spend it. And if you can have confidence in knowing where you're going to spend it, the stakes are high. But whether that confidence you have is legitimate or false is entirely dependent on whose character you trust. Whether you have legitimate confidence is entirely dependent on whether you're trusting Jesus' character or your own. And there's some of you in this room, right here, right now, that have access to legitimate confidence. In other words, you're right to believe that you're going to spend eternity with Jesus. And there's some of you in this room who don't have access to that because you don't know him. And and one of the weird things that, that I see about this is so often... The people who shouldn't have confidence do, and the people who should have confidence don't. Okay, I know, I know that got kind of confusing, but, but let me explain that. First, like, the people who have confidence that's sort of false confidence, that's sort of irrational confidence that isn't grounded in who Jesus is or in his word. Okay, you guys know Hannah Thompson, right? She's on staff with us. Hannah Thompson is the most confident person I've ever met. Is Hannah, are you around here? She might be doing something. This would be a lot funnier. She's not, okay. Just pretend like she's sitting in the back. It'd be funnier that way. We'll just talk about her while she's gone. Hannah is the most confident person I've ever met. In fact, okay, let me, Hannah is the most irrationally confident person I've ever met. I've asked her that I can tell this story, by the way, so don't feel bad for her. She's fine. She's confident. She's fine. So, for example, one time our staff was coming back from a staff retreat. We were all driving in the car. We, kind of, we were kind of tired, so I was like looking at my phone or whatever, and just from the back, I hear Hannah say, look, it's St. Paul. And I was like, that's weird. 
And, and you might think, like, that's weird because why is she so excited about St. Paul? There's a different reason why it was weird. Because I looked up from my phone, and I looked over, and I saw the skyline of Minneapolis. <laughs> Hannah has lived here for over a year in Minneapolis, right? So I, like, see this, and I'm, like, about to break her the news, but Isaac is also in the car, and Isaac is, like, a crotchety old man. And, and so he, like, beat me to it, and he's just sort of angry that Hannah doesn't know what city she lives in. And he's like, Hannah, like, that is Minneapolis. Like, I live a mile from here. And, and Hannah's like, no, 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 like, you know. And we're all like, Hannah, like, it's Minneapolis, you know. Now, any other person in the world would just cut their losses at this point, right? Like, just own, like, I don't know the city that I live in. They'd get made fun of a little bit. We'd all move on. But what do you do when you're Hannah Thompson? You double down. So presented with the evidence of the skyline of everyone in the car saying this is Minneapolis and the fact that she's lived in the city for a year, Hannah points at the twin stadium and goes, no, that's St. Paul. Okay, irrational confidence. This irrational confidence also almost got me killed. It's only like a slight exaggeration. Irrational confidence is dangerous. Let me tell you why. So we're in a car. Okay, and we're driving, we're at like a busy intersection, and I'm turning left, and Hannah's in the driver's seat, Kaylee's in the back, whatever, and, and I'm going to turn left, and I'm like watching the car on the left, trying to decide if I have enough gap, and you know how sometimes at busy intersections, the people in the seat next to you kind of help you out? So Hannah goes, you're good. <laughs> so I drove into the intersection, because Hannah said that I was good. I get in the middle of the intersection, I'm about to get T-boned by the car on Hannah's side, and so I like see it, I freak out, I gun it, and I like fling past him, right? And I'm like breathing hard, I look at Hannah, I'm like, what happened? Like, what do you mean you're good? And she just started laughing, I was like, I don't know. <laughs> How do you not know? So like literally in her brain, she just was like, yeah, it's probably good. And then she said, you're good. When you're irrationally confident, you assume that things are fine when they're not, right? And, and, and it, can be, it can be dangerous, like straight up dangerous. There's some of you that are irrationally confident that you're good with God. And you have this false sense of security that, that you know all the stuff about Christianity, that you've been around it, and so you kind of know how to do it, you sort of know what's up. And that assumption is dangerous because you'll assume that you're fine when you're not and you won't be able to hear the warnings when someone tells you you need to find something else in your life. And here's what's so like frustrating about this, so hard about this, and I know this because I was that dude, is like, if you're the person in the room right now saying, hey, I know that, like, yeah, this is good for somebody else, it's probably for you, right? Like, if you come to Salt Company, you're like, oh, yeah, this gospel stuff, this Jesus stuff, like, I know this, I've heard it before, like, you might be the one that I'm talking to because this stuff never gets old. You never know it well enough. And when you're, in a, when you're irrationally confident, this is what you do. You place confidence in yourself instead of in Jesus, I've watched too many friends walk away from Jesus. I've been through a lot of hard stuff in my life. One of the hardest things I've watched is someone that I care about walking away from the source of hope and joy, the meaning in their life. 
And here's what I know is that I'm going to watch some of you walk away. There are some of you who are claiming Jesus right now or who will claim Jesus that if I talk to you in 10 years, you'll have nothing to do with him. And you won't have that meaning in your life anymore. Now, what I'm not saying is that you actually had Jesus and that he sort of let you go. What I am saying is that you can kind of play at Christianity and actually be worshiping yourself instead of Jesus and depending on yourself instead of Jesus. And these are the trends that I've seen in people that walk away. Confidence in your own goodness. I've had friends who sort of fall into sin that everybody falls into that they could just own and come back to him, but they think that they have this good image to maintain and they hold on to it for dear life and they don't think that they can own it to anyone in their life. And so instead of coming back and just admitting that they're screwed up and that they need help, they think that they can kind of do it on their own, that they're good enough to sort of work themselves out of whatever they're struggling with, and they isolate themselves, and they eventually isolate themselves from Jesus because they don't think that they need him because they've got it on their own. Or confidence in your own understanding of morality. This is doubting God and what he has to say about your life. It's, it's reading the Bible and, and going like, I don't know if I like that, so I'm not gonna believe it. Now, I'm not saying that if you have doubts, this is you. We all have doubts, I have doubts. But I'm saying when you live in those doubts and you end up trusting yourself and your own instincts and your own morality and your own desires for how to live instead of God's. Have you ever like thought back on yourself from like five years ago or like 10 years ago. Okay, so when I was a freshman in college, I was an idiot. Like just, just not a smart human being. I thought I had the world figured out and I like really didn't, like really didn't. I'll tell you some stories another time. Um, you, okay, do you realize that the you in 10 years is gonna look back at the current you and think that you were kind of dumb? <laughs> I hate to break this to you, okay? But I'm not saying it. You're saying it in 10 years. <laughs> because you kind of think, you always think that you have life figured out. And then you live more life. You learn more. And you figure out that you didn't know what you were talking about. You didn't really know how to live. Okay, if there's that much of a gap between you and your 10-year self, how much of a gap is there between you and God who invented morality? How much of a gap is there between your intelligence and your ability to understand the right way to live and the God who made your soul. Don't you see, and look, I'm including myself in this, okay, I do this. Don't you see how like narcissistic it is to say that you know how to live and that God doesn't? Some of you are banking your life and your eternity on your own character, on your own ability to be good, on your own understanding of morality, and it's a dumb risk to take. And you're irrationally confident that you're fine in life and that you're fine with God because you know some Christian stuff and you show up at some Christian things. But there's some of you in this room that actually have the opposite problem. That, that this verse is meant to be encouraging to you. It's saying, look, you can have confidence when you show up before Jesus and you can ask him for whatever you want to ask him for and he hears you because he loves you because you're his. But that's really, really hard for you to believe. 
This is, this is me. I struggle with this. Like the biggest doubts I've had about Christianity is God's ability to love me, like my own ability to live as a Christian because I kind of suck at Christianity. Like I'm just not that good at it. Like if you got to know me, you wouldn't be impressed. And that's sort of true for all of us. And so this is what we do is we sort of analyze how bad we are at Christianity and, and, and we doubt that God can love us, that we can have any sort of confidence before him, and so we sort of shy away from him. But, but look, this is what you're doing in that moment is you're treating God like everything else in life. You're treating him as if his love for you is conditional. Almost everything in life is conditional based on your performance, but that's not true of Jesus. He'll stick with you. You look back at the text, he says this, he says, I'll write these things to you who believe who believe in the Son of God. The people who have confidence are the ones who believe in the Son of God. There's no other requirements. And like all you have to do is to trust him. That's it. To just say, Jesus, I need you. I can't do this on my own. And some people get mad about this, right? They give you the whole like, so let me get this straight. So you can just live a terrible life. You can kind of live however you want. And at the end of it, if you like truly, like absolutely trust Jesus, then you're gonna be fine and you're just gonna be with him forever. Yes, absolutely, because that's how grace works. It's crazy. It doesn't make any sense, but it's awesome if you need grace. That's what Jesus does, and in his forgiveness, he can offer you confidence, confidence that no matter how far gone you are, that you can come to him. And that he'll hear you, that he'll listen to you, that he'll welcome you into his presence in confidence that you will never fall away. The people that fall away are people who never trusted Jesus. They're the people who trusted themselves, but if you trust Jesus, he's gonna hold on to you. That's what real life is, is it's finding your life in him through depending on him. So a lot of you guys know Colin, Raise your hand, Colin. Give him that's that's Colin right there. He came up to me before this and asked me like if I was gonna beat him up, like if I was gonna like make fun of him, which is a fair question because I think I've done that before from stage, but I'm not going to. We were hanging out this week and and we were talking about this text and about the difference between like life in Christ and just sort of like pretending to be a Christian or like doing Christian stuff. And uh, I just asked him, like, dude, when do you think that happened for you? Like, when do you think that switch happened where you, like, really got it, where you really found life in Christ? And, and he said, I think it was sometime, like, shortly after my freshman year, which is crazy if you know Colin, because Colin has been around Christianity his entire life. And, and I didn't know him, but from, like, what I can tell, and, and I think the people in his life would say, like, he wasn't, like, just full out faking it. Like, it, you know, like he genuinely wanted to know stuff about Christianity. He knew a lot about the Bible. He had heard the gospel a thousand times. He had heard this message before about how life is only found in Christ. And you can't just do stuff. You can't just perform. You got you to gotta trust Jesus. He had heard that a thousand times, but it hadn't clicked yet. And I asked him, like, what the difference is now in his life now and then. And he said, hope. He didn't say, like, the the stuff that he's doing now that he didn't do before. He didn't say new knowledge that he said, that he has. He said, I've got a new hope. The thing that I used to hope in, yeah, like I believed in Jesus, but the thing that I was living for, the life that I was looking for was in like my career and my plan and my success and like all this stuff that I was doing. And now I've seen that Jesus is amazing. 
and, and, and he's what I'm living for, and like he's what I trust. You, do you see that? Like something changed internally. He loves something new now. He loves Jesus. He's not just trying to impress him. What's your confidence in? Have you experienced that? Is your confidence in yourself or is it in Jesus' character? What's your hope in? Is your life in your life and your ability to make it what you want to make it or is it in the life that only Jesus offers? Okay, I got to keep moving. Next one. Freedom instead of slavery describes the Christian. 1 John 5.18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Uh, what? Let me, I, let me read that again. We know that everyone who is born of God does not keep on sinning. Didn't I literally just say like the opposite of that? Okay, so that should freak us out a little bit, but here's the deal. When you run into a text in the Bible that doesn't make sense, that seems confusing, you've got to look at the bigger picture. You've got to look at the Bible as a whole. Okay, so we have to take that in context with the rest of this book, and 1 John 1.8 starts out like this. The beginning of this book says this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So in other words, if you claim that you don't sin, that you've kind of become perfect, that you never sin anymore, you're lying. Okay, so how do we take these two things together? Here's what this is saying. Sin no longer dominates your life. It no longer defines you because sin is no longer what you love. It's no longer your life. So another way to say this is turning from sin is the evidence of your salvation, not the grounds for it. Okay, so, so you don't have to sort of clean yourself up and like work out a bunch of sin in your life in order to know Jesus, to have life in him. Jesus comes in your life and he changes you. He, he gives you supernatural life and then, and then you get a taste of something better than what you've been living for. You, you figure out that knowing Jesus is better than sin and you start to love new things. And even though you still fall into sin, it's not what you love anymore. It's not your life anymore. But some of you are, are in this place right now, I think especially, I was thinking about you guys who like came to know Jesus last year, like you're new Christians as of last year, but you've kind of gone through that honeymoon phase where everything's like exciting and you feel really good about everything. And there's some old temptations in your life that are starting to creep back up. There's some old ways that you used to live that you're tempted to start to live like that again. And it's because you think that life is there, that joy is there, that, that, that sin is a good way to live. Right? And, and, and it's because sin is fun. It is. But it's temporary. Okay, John 10.10 10 says this, the thief comes only to steal, steal, kill, and destroy. I come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Okay, listen to me. There's an enemy of your soul and he's really good at what he does. And he will try to convince you that there's a lot of other better ways to live out there than following Jesus. That there's a better life for you than what Jesus offers. And in that moment, he's trying to kill the life that you have in Jesus. He's trying to kill your spiritual life that you found in Christ. And he'll make that other life seem real, seem good, seem fun, seem irresistible. But sin is like sugar-flavored poison. It tastes good for a second, but it'll kill your soul. And look, okay, we, we, I say like some pretty upfront stuff. That's kind of just like 
who I am. I, I just say stuff. But some of that is who we are at Salt Company. Like, we talk about sin here. We talk about ways we should live and that we shouldn't live, right? Here, here's why, though. It's not just to be a jerk. Like, I'm as frustrated by sort of the, the condemning, judgmental people as you are. This is why we talk about sin. Is because if you, like, if you were about to drink a glass of arsenic, my response would not be, like, hey, maybe you should, I don't know if you should do that, but, you know, you, you do you. Like, live however you want. I'd be like, no, like, don't drink poison. It's a bad idea, right? Sin is spiritual poison. Don't believe it. Don't believe that that's what, that's worth living for. And, and for some of you, this is a little side note, but that's why you need community, is you need people in your life who are willing to call you back to what you've said that you believe, to call you back to the good life of following Jesus. And, and you can't find that entirely just by showing up here. You've got to actually know some of the people in this room. You've got to show up to connection group and be consistent in it. Even if it isn't like the perfect thing that you've always dreamed of, you just keep showing up and keep being honest. And those people will help you live the life that you want to live. And, and like this is what's true is Jesus wants a good life for you, not a bad life for you. He's the maker of your soul. He knows how to satisfy it. He, he can bring you life. Like, that's what that verse says. The second half of John 10, 10, I came that you may have life and that you might have it abundantly. Like, picture a cup that somebody's pouring water into and it's just overflowing. He wants you to have an abundance of a good life. That's who Jesus is. But sometimes we flip that around. Like, Jesus seems kind of lame and hard and not fun to follow. But following Jesus isn't slavery, Following Jesus isn't a straitjacket. It isn't restrictive. Sin is slavery. Jesus is freedom. Jesus is the good life that you've always wanted to live. He's the best life that you could possibly have. And the difference between someone who has life in Christ and someone who doesn't is not whether they sin. Okay, we all do. It's whether they love sin or not. It's whether they have new desires for Jesus instead of sin. New life gives you a taste of something better than sin. And even though you run back from it from time to time, you hate it. And you want to come back to Jesus. Following Jesus goes from being an ought to to a want to. Like I should do this to I want to do this. This is awesome. Okay, next mark, next vital sign of life is that you have eternal life instead of death. 1 John 5.11. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Who does, whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Okay, that's a controversial statement, right? Like, this is what this is saying. The only people who have eternal life with God are people who have trusted Jesus. There's no other religion. There's no other worldview. There's no other way to get to God. That's an exclusive statement. That's an offensive statement in some ways. And I do understand why people are offended by that. I get it. But at the same time, it doesn't actually make sense to get frustrated about that. And, and listen in on this. I want you to think with me through this, okay? The reason it doesn't make sense to get frustrated about that is because eternal life is not primarily a place it's not primarily a reward for good behavior. Eternal life is a person. Okay, so, so Jesus Christ does not come to, to kind of offer you a reward for good living, to kind of give you heaven as a pat on the back. 
Because if that was the case, then that's kind of arbitrary on who gets in and who doesn't. And yeah, I can see how that doesn't make sense. But Jesus Christ came not to offer you some reward for your good behavior, but to offer you himself. Eternal life is having Jesus himself. And he's offered himself to every single person. Every single person who wants Jesus can have him. People don't receive eternal life because they don't want it. Because they don't want Jesus. And if you don't like Jesus, then you won't like heaven because heaven is heaven because Jesus is there. Okay, so last week I told you my story about meeting my wife, Jessamy, and like that whole like hot mess of like figuring out how to date and stuff like that. The thing I forgot to tell you is like I got real like, well, I guess you could figure that out. But like I told a buddy that I was going to marry her two weeks into knowing her, okay? I wouldn't necessarily recommend that, but I was like, I was in, all right? But here's the deal. When I was in that like infatuation stage or whatever, I didn't actually love her. I loved the idea of her. I loved the idea of what a relationship could get for me. The, the affection that I could receive from it, the encouragement, sort of the status of, of being in a relationship. Look, that's not love, that's selfishness. And that's what some of us try to do to Christianity. You don't actually love Jesus, you just want to get something out of him. You just want to get this sort of eternal reward. But here's the deal, over time, as I got to know Just Me better, I actually fell in love with her. I fell in love with who she was, not with what she could get for me. Until the day that I slid a ring on her finger and I said, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, I will love you. Now why didn't I just say like in richness, in health, in good times, when it's, when it's better, I will love you? Because I wasn't saying I love what you can give me. I was saying, I love you. I'm in on you. And relationship itself is the reward. Okay, so the Bible actually uses the analogy of marriage as what it's like to have relationship with Jesus. It, it talks about eternity like a wedding where God's people will be like a bride that will be presented to the groom, Jesus, and that they'll make vows to each other. So the focal point of heaven is relationship with the Son. It's Jesus. And so, so what's the, like when you propose to someone, what's the purpose of the ring? It's a sign of commitment, right? Like this cost me something, and I'm showing that you're more valuable to me than that. It, it's a worthwhile sacrifice to demonstrate the value of that person. In Jesus offering himself to you, he didn't make his promise to you with a ring. He made it to you with a cross. The ultimate sacrifice was Jesus' gift to you as a promise to say, I want relationship with you, and I want it enough that I'm willing to die so that you can come to me. And he proposed to you, and then he said, vows to you, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, and richer and poorer, no matter what you do to me, I will love you. See, Jesus doesn't give you the prize, he is the prize. Have you said yes to him? Do you actually love him? And here's what that means, if that's true, that Jesus is eternal life, it means that eternal life can start now. 
Like on that day, you're going to see him face to face and it's going to be awesome, but you don't have to wait till then because yeah, everything's going to be perfect then and it's hard now, but you have him. Like you can have Jesus now and that means that you can have life now and you can have life abundantly. And ultimately, that's what gives you confidence that you have life in him. It's not some proof. It's not the quality of your morality. It's that you have him and that he is trustworthy. So to kind of tie this together, here's what I'm saying to you is you can have life and you can have it abundantly, but it's not through sort of improving your life. It's not through anything else. It's simply through knowing Jesus because he is life itself. And if you're doubting that, if you're not sure if that's real, you can have confidence in that by getting to know Jesus. By having a relationship with him. Okay, so if you were to ask me how I know my wife is real, it's a weird question. But if you were to ask me that, I could present you with proof. I could give you a note she wrote, I could show you some of her stuff, but I don't need to present you. To, what, do you what do you mean, how do I know my wife is real? I know my wife is real because I know my wife. Like, I have relationship. I talked with her before I came here. Like, I know her, and my life is, like, intermixed with hers. And we have one life together now. And if someone were to ask me, how do you know that Jesus is real? I could present you with some proofs. I could give you some evidence. But at the end of the day, I would just say, what do you mean, how do I know that Jesus is real? I know him. I talked to him today. My life is transformed ever since that I met him. His life is my life and my life is his life. That's what it means to have life is relationship with him. You can have life and have it abundantly. Do you have it? Do you have him? Let me pray. Jesus, you're, um, yeah, you're awesome and you're the source of life and uh, it's so easy to chase significance in life and whatever and other stuff, but you're the only one that satisfies. And, and thanks that there's people in this room that have figured that out. And I pray that we would be people who trust and depend on you, who don't depend on ourselves, who don't have confidence in who we are, who aren't proud like that, but who humble ourselves and just trust who you are, Jesus. And thanks for being everything that we need. Thanks for loving us, encouraging us, helping us, being everything that we've always looked for and never found in anything else. You're so, so good, Jesus. And I'm so thankful to get to be with you tonight as, as I'm with Salt Company. Thanks that you're here with us. And we're excited to worship you now. We love you. Amen.